Welcome to the teaching ministry of Kungsvinger Lutheran Church. Kungsvinger is a beacon for the gospel of Jesus Christ and is located on the plains of northwestern Minnesota. We proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins and salvation by grace through faith alone. And now, here's a message from Pastor Chris Roseborough. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of Jesus. So in our gospel text, you'll note there's something pretty amazing happening. And it, well, it defies all the logic of those who would deny that God is doing anything in baptism. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they've said, listen, baptism is the thing that you do to show the world that you've asked Jesus into your heart. Well, I would note that's not what Jesus is doing. Um, He's not showing the world that he's asked himself into his heart. That's not what's going on there. And then when you talk to some people, they say, listen, baptism is merely a symbol. God doesn't do anything in it. We do it purely out of stark, naked obedience to the precepts and commands of God. And you sit there and go, huh, well, I know a fellow who received the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. Well, who would that be? You know, Jesus, <laughs> right? You'll note there's so much going on here, and we'll also note this. It is odd that Jesus is getting baptized. It truly is because John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism for sinners, a baptism for sinners and, and repentance. And did Jesus ever sin? Not at once. Did he ever need to repent of anything that he had done wrong? Not even one thing. So what's going on there? Well, more than meets the eye for sure. And so I thought just to be obstinate because, you know, I like teaching lots of Bible. I thought maybe what we could do is do a little bit of a study of Noah's Ark. You'll note that throughout the Old Testament, there are notable water rescue stories, Noah's Ark being one of them, and then you have the crossing of the Red Sea, and then our Old Testament text that invokes the crossing of the Red Sea from Joshua 3 today. So much going on. So by way of reminder, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, we are told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. The, uh, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, then everybody talks about what's called the tohu vabohu, right? Uh, and that's the formlessness, the void of God. If you were to think when God created the heavens and the earth, he didn't start with everything being ordered. In fact, there was chaos, and there was a deep, and there was a tohom, and you had the Holy Spirit brooding over America fetting, it's a bird verb, over the, the deep, over the waters of the deep. And then we hear, let there be light. And so you'll note there's a big theme in Scripture, and that is, is that things start off in chaos and then end in complete order. God taking the chaos and getting rid of that and bringing order and reason and things to this. This is why when you think about the book of Revelation and it talks about before the throne of Christ, there is this glassy sea 
right? That glassy sea is, a, if you would, a symbol of the fact that Christ has conquered the, ta- the chaos, the tohu vabohu, and once and for all gotten rid of it. And so when human beings fell into sin, it was a reversal of the order that God had made and a reintroduction of chaos. I, can, I think we can all say about our lives that chaos seems to be a thing that uh, it invades on some, with some frequency in our lives, right? We call it drama, right? And other people, they've had so much chaos and drama, they have PTSD. And other people, they've legitimately suffered traumas as a result of the chaos in their life. And this is all brought on by sin. And so in Genesis chapter 6, it begins, it says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This, by the way, is not talking about interracial marriage between angels and human beings. It's talking about, inter, it's talking about interreligious marriages. People who believed in God abandoned marrying other people who believed in God and instead married people who were, well very carnal and focused on the temporal things of this world. And so they took the, any wives they chose and then says this, then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. And verse five then goes on to say, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I remember pointing this verse out to an emergent fellow decades ago who denied that man was born with original sin. I would just said, well, it says right here that the intentions of man's and thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. And there's a follow-up verse we'll get to at the end of our pericope that talks about that being from our youth. Have you noticed that sin is a constant companion? In fact, sin is a part of all of our earliest memories. Uh, whether it be your own sin or your parents' sin or the sin of a relative, uh, sin is a constant companion in our life. And this is a, uh, <clears throat> a sure sign that we are under the chaos, under the tohu vabohu. And we need to experience, if you would, a regenesising. Now, I know that word is not in the dictionary, and I, I appreciate the latitude that you give me in like creating new words, but regenesising is a good way to think about baptism, and we'll talk about that as we go. So it goes on to say that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So one of the things we know about the world before the flood is that one of the predominant sins that, uh, that well, caused God to act in judgment was the violence that was on the earth. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God then said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, you'll note here that 
God didn't really bring a full end to the creation. This was a kind of a reboot, but it's a reboot with a system that's still corrupted with the virus of sin. And so bringing humanity down to just a few souls. And God did not make an end of the animals. Instead, he tucked humanity and all of the animals inside of this tidy little ark. And you'll note, when you take a look at how the ark is depicted in artwork, it oftentimes looks like one big coffin, which is not a bad way to depict the ark, if you think about it. It's not a bad way altogether. And of course, it's got a door right there in the center of one of its sides. And the church fathers, they recognized that this flood account is a type and shadow of a judgment of God that is coming, not a judgment of God that was final because you'll note that at the end of all of this, there isn't a new heavens and a new earth. There isn't a time where sin is not present with us. It still is. And so we are to learn from this that God's intention in Christ in the waters of baptism is to regenesis us. And we always say in the creed that Christ is returning in glory to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That kingdom will visibly arrive when Christ arrives, and on that day God will act in judgment. But he will not destroy the earth with water on that day. Instead, he will destroy the earth with fire. And so you'll note, this is a type and shadow of that, even though water and fire are very much opposites. The point here is is that if you want to be saved through water, then there's something going on here. And Peter himself points this out in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what it says in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let's make sure we understand who's who with the sentence You and I are the unrighteous. Christ is the righteous one, and he's the one who suffered once for your sins. So that he, Christ, might bring us to God, and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You'll note here, talking about proclaiming to the spirits in prison, this is Christ's descent into hell. A lot of evangelicals are completely unaware of this, and so when they run into it in the Apostles' creed they sit there and go wait what christ descended into hell and then you got guys like ken copeland who are aware aware that christ descended into hell and then falsely teach that christ went to hell in order to continue suffering for our sins and that he was born again in hell and that's what caused him to be spring from the clink this is just nonsense christ it says here went to proclaim to preach to basically preach his victory to the spirits who were in prison And that is in Sheol, because formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Important for us to note here, God's patience continues to wait in the days of today, in the days of Chris Rosebro, in the days of of Dwayne Clevin and Stephen Elliott and all of you. In these days, God's patience still continues to wait while Christ's return is being prepared. You get the idea here? So while formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, in the ark, a few, that is only eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then Peter says these words, Baptism, which is the anti-tupon, which is the anti-type of the flood, 
think of types and shadows. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Always cracks me up when somebody sits there and goes, you Lutherans, you believe that baptism saves. It's like, well, of course we do. It says it right here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism, nominative noun, now, noon, saves, sozo. Who's it save? Y'all. It saves you all, right? It says it right here. Well, it doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he saves us through baptism. And it's like, where did you go to seminary? It's like, how does that sentence not mean what it says? Baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. Um, Not as a removal of dirt from the body, by the way, that's called a bath, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. And the reason why baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience is because in our baptisms we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And all of this is then connected to what? His suffering, bleeding, and dying on the cross. For your sins and mine. Is it any wonder that Paul says that in our baptisms we are buried with Christ who bled and died for our sins? Good stuff when you think about it here. Coming back to Noah and the flood, God says that he's determined to make an end to all flesh. The earth is filled with violence and so he commands Noah to make an ark but he says to, to, um, to uh, Noah, he then says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive, and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. I sometimes think about the time when the emergent church was still a thing. It's a little bit on my mind lately. But I remember emergent church leaders really taking issue with the fact that Christian parents would dare, and I mean dare, to put artwork depicting the ark or buy an ark toy set for their children. You know, you got an ark and then you got Noah and his family and then you got two lions and two elephants and two ostriches and two of these things. And they, and they think it's inappropriate because the ark is, is a symbol of God's judgment and a symbol of God's wrath. But is it? Is it? It's a symbol of God's salvation. It's a symbol of Christ. It is only a symbol of God's wrath if you are persisting in sin and unbelief. I find it interesting that the emergent church hates the ark. It kind of tells me that you don't see the cross in there. You don't see this connected to Christ. Even the church fathers, the little door on the side of the ark, they saw that as a, as a depiction of Christ's pierced side when he was on the cross. You know, and so God himself tucks Noah and his family, and it's through the ark that we are still here because we are all descendants of Noah and his family. So Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Noah and his wife and his sons and wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded him. And when it talks about everything that creeps on the ground, that's talking about the creepy crawly things, the bugs and the millipedes and I kind of wish the spiders hadn't made it, but oh well. Yeah, <laughs> alas, they did. But, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell down upon the earth 40 days, 40 nights. Isn't it interesting that the Children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. You kind of get the idea. There's something to this number. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they all went into the ark with Noah Two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And Yahweh shut him in. It was God himself who shut the door. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. This is not a regional flood. I want to make that very clear. You know, when we talk about like the Epic of Gilgamesh or something like that, you know, you'll note that there are a lot of so-called biblical scholars today who just sit there and go, well, you know, we don't really believe that the flood covered the whole earth. It's like, do you guys even watch the Discovery Channel? And, you know, or, or any of the science channels? Because I find it so fascinating that we have atheist scientists who are interviewed about the earth and things that took place in the past, and they readily say, there have been notable extinction events in the history of our planet. Right. I can think of a pretty notable extinction event that took place called the flood, right? And think of it this way. Where do you think that all these fossils came from? Uh, just kind of work that out. I mean, you deer hunters out here, are you, you know, or you, have you ever struck a deer and killed it by accident? Thank God I haven't done that yet. But, you know, I'll note that as the winter drags on, that it's not uncommon to see dead deer in the ditch. When spring comes, do they fossilize? No. The bald eagles and the other creatures come and eat up those, those carcasses, and then what's left of them pretty much falls apart, Right. So how does one make a fossil? You have to bury that animal at the moment of death, not just underground, but there also has to be water present. You'll note that water needs to be present in order to make fossils because what happens in the fossilization process is you have the minerals from the soil getting put into the carcass of the animal. This is where this all takes place. There has to be some kind of a medium for the transfer of these things. And so I would note that we have great scientific evidence of an extinction event that took place, and it's global. 
not just regional. This took place on all of the earth. Christ himself makes this clear. But the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all of mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Important to note, in saying that all, all human beings and all creatures died, whatever humanity's progress was in technology up to that point came to an abrupt end. All the cities of mankind were destroyed, every single one of them. But then we hear these words, God remembered Noah. Good thing. That's an important thing. Remember the prayer while Christ was on the cross that one of the thieves said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ does remember us. And it's important to note that not only does Christ remember us, he remembers us even if we were to perish before his return. Let's say something awful happened to you and you you were crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a ship and that ship sank and you perished at sea and your body becomes fish food for those uh, creatures in the Atlantic. Do not perish. Do not Do not worry. Your body will be raised. Christ will remember even you. It's not like when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, he's going to go, you know, you know, there was this guy. Um, What what, what was his name? Nate Garnarvich? You know, (laughs) and you know, and, and, and like he forgot him. No, he remembers each and every one of us. He knows us by names. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Noah's is as well. And God, even when he acts in his wrath, he remembers his saints and those who are righteous by faith. So God remembered Noah. He remembered all the beasts, all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. It's interesting to note. The Hebrew word for wind is also the same word for spirit. He caused a ruach to blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. This doesn't sound like a legend, does it? It sounds like a history because it is. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. And on the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, and then he sent forth a dove from him. Note here, when Christ was baptized in our gospel text, The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove upon Christ and remained on him. And the voice of the Father was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You'll note we can make a direct line with these data points. From Genesis 1, where the Holy Spirit is merica-fetting, again, bird verb, hovering over the deep of the waters. Here we have another dove, and this dove is not going to be able to find a place to land for a little bit. And then we have the dove, the Holy Spirit, descending upon Christ in the waters of baptism. 
All of this invokes the great promise that God is making a new heavens and a new earth. And Christ Jesus himself is the firstborn of the new creation. He's regenesist himself there in the waters of his baptism. And it's important to note this, that we've already noted that it's kind of odd that Christ was baptized. So what's the point of Christ's baptism? Well, Christ himself makes it clear that in his baptism it's to fulfill all righteousness. But there's, a, like I said, more than meets the eye going on here. The other part of this is, is that Christ's baptism is the very first Christian baptism. It makes sense when you start to think about it. Because what does Peter say on the great day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit descends upon the believers in tongues of fire and they're able to proclaim the wonders of God in human languages that they had not studied? Peter delivers his great sermon, and at the end of that sermon, it says that the people who were listening to him, they were cut to the heart, and they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized, passive verb, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off and all whom the Lord God will call to himself. So that being the case, you'll note that Christians also receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. Peter says so right there in Acts chapter 2. And so we now must make this connection that although it is absolutely true of each and every one of us that we were also conceived and born in sin, just like Noah and his family, just like all the descendants of Adam before them, that Christ in the waters of baptism has done something amazing for us. Paul describes it in Titus chapter 3 as this, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but dia, dia, through the washing of regeneration. And there's an interesting word there in the Greek, regeneration. The word is polygonasius, and it's only used twice in the New Testament. The other time that it is used is in regard to Christ regenerating, regenesising the world when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so we see then that God saved us through the washing of regeneration. We truly have been regenerated in the waters of baptism and our faith hangs on to this reality because it is absolutely true. And so here we begin to see a picture of the coming genesis that Christ is going to do here on planet Earth. It's in the types and shadows here in this chapter of Genesis, but will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent forth a raven, and then he sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. She returned to him and to the ark. So there's the dove America fetting over the waters of the flood. Great picture. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, a sign of peace. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. Can you believe that? On Noah's 601st birthday, that's when all of this took place. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. 
in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, and the earth had dried up. And then God said to Noah, you go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. A picture of what's coming in the new earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil, even from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so you'll note that God decides that he's going to lift the curse of the ground, despite the fact that the intentions of man's heart is only evil from his youth. But I must remind you, that although this is a a reboot of the creation, this is not the same as what Christ is going to do when he returns in glory. When Jesus returns in glory, we will all come out of the ark, which is Christ, because when you were baptized, you were tucked away inside of him, and you inside of Christ will survive God's great wrath on the day of judgment, and he will raise you from the dead. And when we are finally able to enter into that new earth, the earth that Christ is creating, the one that has no suffering, the one that has no death, the one that is promised that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, not only will there not be a curse of the ground, there will no longer be the curse of women bearing children in great pain, there will no longer be the curse of death, and there will never be a time when we have to attend a funeral ever again. And so when that happens, you'll note that God will never again curse any of us For then, because we are in Christ and raised from the dead, the intention of our hearts will only be good even from our youth. Oh, what a wonderful world that is to come. And when you connect all of these dots, when you read the Scripture with the other Scriptures in mind, then you can see that Christ's baptism is super important. It gives us great hope. And you'll note that Christ has numbered himself among sinners, although he is not one, which foreshadows his going to the cross so that he would bleed and die for your sins and mine so that we might live. Oh, what great promises we have in Christ. What great promises we have as a result of his baptism. I remind you again what Peter says, Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, and indeed he has already done that. And being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, he, God, now continues to show his patience to us and to the world as we await the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, and the true regenesising of the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you would like to support the teaching ministry of Kungsvinger Lutheran Church, you can do so by sending a tax-free donation to Kungsvinger Lutheran Church, 15950, 470th Avenue Northwest, Oslo, Minnesota, 567 
And again, that address is Kungsvinger Lutheran Church, 15950, 470th Avenue Northwest, Oslo, Minnesota, 56744. We thank you for your support. All of our teaching messages may be freely distributed as long as you do not edit or change the content of the message. And again, thank you for listening.